0: Because everything is in flux in the universe, and we all know this. And yet, we try to you know, recognize patterns and create structures to deal with this. And yet, after a while, it becomes obsolete. And it's a really interesting existential question of doing our medicine.
1: I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods, through the power of conversation. Here in the Midwest, we've struggled through a cold and wet spring. Winter, grudgingly like an old boomer that can't afford to retire, kept clocking in day after day. Even after the snowdrops and crocuses announced the threat of spring, even after the daffodils appeared, and let me tell you something, those are not delicate flowers because the year of the water rabbit seems to favor yin in a big, big way. I'm not talking about... The cool shade of an oak tree on a summer day. I'm talking about below freezing temperatures weeks after they should have been in the rearview mirror. Yang might kill you in a blaze of glory, but yin will piteously freeze you to death. Still, despite the cold, the backyard is a galaxy of yellow buttercups. The dogwoods have been ever so slowly plumping their buds, while the Japanese maple just outside the clinic door has been hoarding its spring leaves. Then with yesterday's sunshine and warm spring wind, its tightly closed buds surrendered into a half inch of spring shoots. It happened overnight. There was humidity in the morning air. The plum trees are suddenly full of green leaves. They'll turn purple in a couple of weeks. We have thunderstorms and birdsong. All the cats, even the one that doesn't like going outside, they all want to go outside. Overnight, the red buds, they punctuated the neighborhood with fuchsia purple bloom. The beauty and violence of spring, it's arrived. Like the flow of a tide that turned and gathered momentum. The season of wood of gather and burst, it's here. Now's the time to put yourself in front of the rising, invigorated Yang And it's an opportune moment to seize an advantage. Position yourself in a clear lane for the growth that you want to see. This is the time to sow with intention the harvest that's waiting at the other side of the cycle. Intentional focus now, like saving for retirement beginning at age 23, yeah, that'll put you on the right side of compound interest. I think that what I most love about the spring is that it reminds me of moments in my youth when... It was at this time of year, I remember a kind of kinship awakening with nature. It reliably comes around right about now. While nature goes through cycles of growth and decline, and as humans, we do as well, but within those cycles of expansion and contraction, a thread of experience runs through it. That experience, that seasoning, that Acquiring of skill and knowledge can, in time, grow into a mastery of inquiry, which in turn leads to the kind of clinical skill that can only be honed from the attentive passing of years. In this conversation with Stephen Brown, we reflect on the work of Dr. Shudo Denmai and how uncertainty is a part of the path of practicing medicine. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members, All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast.
2: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Maywe Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: And be sure to mention the code GEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love like our simple needle. Being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit acufastneedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Geological Shop Talk. In this podcast, we bring you roughly 12 to 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives and advice that has its work boots on. In the next few minutes, you'll get a clinical gem of practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work.
3: Hello listeners, my name is Brenda Hood and today we're going to talk about pulse balancing. Specifically, we're going to talk about how to use acupuncture to balance the pulses. And more specifically, we're going to talk about how acupuncture can help to balance out the qi and the blood in the body. In this regard, we can consider the pulses left and right to be the mirrors of the relative balance of qi and blood. The right pulse, we see the reflection zone of the lung, the spleen, and kidney yang, all aspects which are vitally important in the production of qi. And so I refer to the right pulse as the qi pulse. The left, we see the reflection zones of the heart, the liver and kidney yin, all aspects vitally important in the production of left. Therefore I refer to the left pulse as the blood pulse. Once we understand this, we need to figure out what's going on in the body as regards to this balance. We need to figure out if the pulse is too weak and therefore does not come up to a baseline that we would consider healthy, or if it is too strong, which means that it exceeds the baseline that we would consider healthy. We need to return these pulses back to that healthy baseline so that the person can can get on with the business of their life. If you find the pulse is too weak, obviously you're gonna have to figure out how do you augment, how do you supplement, tonify that aspect and raise the pulse so that it reflects a better functioning of that aspect. If it's too strong, then what we need to do is disperse, get rid of, um, drain, so that it it returns to a healthy level and then therefore enables the person to get back to a better balance between qi and blood. The actual technique itself is pretty simple and it doesn't require knowledge of a lot of points, nor does it require that you have a deep understanding of qualities, because all it is is a comparison of the relative strength or size of the pulse you don't need to know slippery, wiry, whatever that's next step in your learning of pulses when you want to look at the pulse and change it, if the pulse is weak, for example on the right side The first two points that we want to consider in expanding the pulse on the right side are large intestine four and stomach 36. Don't get your needles out right away because what you want to do is you want to check. You need to test. So hold the right pulse and then take your finger and use acupressure to press on large intestine four and see if it enables the pulse to expand and get stronger. Do the same for stomach 36 and if you find that these two points help that pulse to expand, you can needle these points and I usually needle them bilaterally. If you find only one of these points is useful, then I don't usually needle the one that wasn't useful. So I only needle the one that seemed to get the change that I was after. In some patients, you'll find that these points are not immediately effective. And when you hold the pulse and hold the point, you should find a change in the pulse almost immediately. But if you don't find that, a point that you can consider adding is put your finger on Ren6, also known as the Sea of Qi, and see if that helps. Sometimes you need to hold your finger on Ren 4. And then if they help, that's when you consider needling. If you find that this does not work, the next points to consider are C of Chi points. And you can consider needling or checking Stomach 9, Ren 17, Du 15, and or Du 14. What happens if the left pulse is too weak? On the left side, my go-to point is Spleen 6. So take the left pulse, put your finger on Spleen 6 and see if it strengthens the pulse. If you find that Spleen 6 does not strengthen the pulse, my next go-to point is Spleen 10. And if spleen 10 doesn't work, then I start looking at the sea of blood points to check if they strengthen the left pulse. Stomach 37, stomach 39, and bladder 11. I typically don't get to trying bladder 11. Usually one of those few points I've already mentioned will do the trick, and so I don't need to go there. What happens if none of these work? You just can't seem to put to get the pulse to move at all. Then definitely see what happens if you put a needle into REN4, or check to see if kidney three, the Yuan source point of the kidneys, provides enough vitality into the system to enable the pulses to move. What happens if the one side pulse is too strong? This is typically a little trickier And for that reason, it's fortunate that it doesn't occur as often as a pulse that is too weak on one side. If you find that the right pulse, the Qi pulse, is too strong, then you want to consider dispersing Stomach 43 and or Stomach 44. If they don't work, consider whether or not you need to disperse Sanjiao five. If the left pulse is too strong, then consider dispersing liver two. And if that's not enough, consider whether or not you need to disperse gallbladder 41. This pulse balancing system is pretty simple. Very few points and it's just an overall balance of the system. You can do this at the start of a treatment and then move on from there, or and this is especially true for beginners, you can use this as your only treatment for this patient at this time. If you have a particularly difficult to diagnose patient, sometimes doing this protocol can help to reveal a deeper imbalance that this chi blood imbalance has masked. And so there's nothing preventing you from doing this treatment and then moving on, once the pulses are balanced, to trying something else. When I do acupuncture in clinic, I find that it is extremely useful to hold the pulse and check points. Not just for pulse balancing, but for anything. Once you move on to finding um, the qualities of the pulse, you can use this method to determine whether or not the point that you intend to use is going to change that pulse quality. That is more difficult and requires more clinical experience. And so I'm hoping that you find that this simple pulse balancing technique is useful for you in the clinic. Thank you for listening. And if you're interested in more, please send me an email at hoodcmcourses at gmail.com. I'm wishing you all the best in your clinic and hoping that you have a good day.
1: Stephen Brown, welcome to Geological.
0: Hello, Michael. It's great to be here.
1: I hope you're here. I hope this works. We're coming at this. We've taken a couple of pitches. See if we could hit the ball here. We've had a few tech issues. There's like, for some reason, there's some real randomness between St. Louis, Missouri,
0: and Bainbridge Island. Yes, a great deal of uncertainty. And uh, our profession is very good at dealing with uncertainty. It's a mixture of you know, probability, potentiality, it's good stuff. Okay, that's kind of funny. Our
1: profession is good at dealing with uncertainty. I think you're right. I, I would say our medicine is good at dealing with uncertainty. It's part of the mix. It's part of the soup. Our profession, us as human beings, I'm not so sure that we're great at uncertainty.
0: I agree. There's always a great deal of resistance to, yeah, randomness and uh, whenever we become a profession we're trying to control you know there is a move to create a structure that holds up against randomness but as with technology it's constantly changing so we just constantly need to change our game and it's kind of difficult and we've experienced that because ours is a traditional medicine we always have to deal with Hmm. how to upgrade this format and still hold on to something essential of the past. So it's always this balancing act. I find it fascinating, and this keeps me in the game. Hmm.
1: Now, this says something about we use structures to kind of fend off randomness. And uh, that really lands for me. You know, I find myself, certainly in my clinical work, I'm looking for a diagnosis. I'm looking for a theory. I gave up on protocols a while ago, but maybe methods would be a better way to say it. You know, something that's reliable in a moment of, oh my gosh, what am I actually looking at with this person? And I mean, that uncertainty thing is like a constant companion. And it's tricky, at least for me, it's been... I would say a deep part of the practice to somehow get friendly with it. Because uncertainty is not going away, I can tell you that for sure.
0: Yes. And, you know, we've really started off the conversation on a very central topic that is consistently ignored in the so-called profession and within education as well. And I wish I would have been pointed to this. It's like the eye of the storm. It doesn't exist but it's sort of in the middle of everything else that is our medicine is how to deal with this uncertainty or unexpected change because everything is in flux in the universe and we all know this and yet we try to you know recognize patterns and create structures to deal with this and yet after a while it becomes obsolete and um it's, it's a really interesting existential question of, of doing our medicine, of how to keep what's essential to the healing process and to disregard or dispose of things that are no longer necessary or even harmful to what we're doing. And uh, because it's not vetted in the way science is, it's more um, experiential, and then it's written down, but it's not the format for deciding what's a good structure still and what's still an unstable structure or useless structure now. It's up to you to vet it. In other words, there's no reliable institution or group that is doing this for us. So each practitioner has to enter that arena. But, you know, I think fundamentally, different between the allopathic medicine and our medicine is the assumption that we don't know. And we're dealing a lot in our medicine, East Asian medicine, in, in uncertainties or unknowables as if they, we could address them. Whereas in Western medicine, what is unknowable or unmeasurable is not regarded. They know they're there. But it's not something that's a part of the inquiry or part of even the process of addressing it. Case in point, I would take the pulse of a patient and decide, well, maybe he's liver deficient, he's got back pain. And those are two things that I know. The patient has presented with a symptom and I've come up with a pattern. You can call it any other pattern. You know, liver is blood deficiency. But we know there's a whole universe of influences that's intersecting at that point within that patient and between that patient and myself and when i treat them i don't limit myself to you know harmonizing their liver say or eliminating their back pain which would be a more symptomatic or a western approach i want their system to upregulate or to harmonize more than i could possibly understand So if I miss something, I want my treatment somehow, if not positively impacted, at least impacted in a neutral way. I don't want there to be any side effects. I don't want there to be any extra pain with my needling that's not necessary in the process of harmonizing him or helping his back pain. So all I'm saying is the unknown, uh, the unseen, is part of my treatment. I mean, because we can't possibly do an exhaustive... Interview and even if we did, they would leave some holes. So, how to address the unseen, unknown, unmeasurable? I think most practitioners, whether they learn this from their instructors or not, want to positively impact that patient on every level possible. And this isn't true in Western medicine. It's very—it's been called, you know, reductionistic, and that that applies. You, you know, what needs to change here? We'll change that, we're done. It's fundamentally different in regards to uncertainty and the chaos of living systems.
1: <laughs> the chaos of living systems, indeed. Man, you just said something here that really kind of stopped me in my tracks. I'm glad you were talking because I wouldn't have been able to. Talk about treating someone and, and the treatment that you do, that it can impact them more than you can possibly understand that our work could have an effect beyond what we could possibly understand. That just opens up a different landscape when I think about clinical practice. And I understand, and I think in our field, many of us would say we work holistically and we're shooting at that. We say that. However... In clinical work, and and I've been there, I've said, yeah, I want to go at this holistic thing, but really what I want is I want their back pain to go away, because I want them to be happy, and I want to feel like I'm a good practitioner, and to leave room for addressing, as you say, the unseen, unknown, and unknowable.
0: But it's more than that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're asking a lot here. We are, uh, but... Leaving room is not enough, because actually the greater part is the unknown. Yin and Yang again. And Yin is the dominant or the unseen in the shadow. It is, you know, we know all this. I mean, if, if we go to you know physics and uh, geophysics and astrophysics, they're showing so much about black holes and dark energy the word is really, really coming out that the biggest influences are not measurable or visible. And yet science wants to go back to the secure framework or structure of Newtonian physics and pretend that the universe runs mostly that way. But I really feel that it's really important if you go into East Asian medicine to know that it does embrace the unknown in a way that It doesn't say I know the unknown. It says I know the unknown is there. And therefore, in a clinical encounter, I want to keep myself open physically, emotionally, and mentally to other information. And see, the problem is, and I've had this problem for the first half of my career, certainly. And even even sometimes I want to go back to a structure that makes sense to me. But I want to be able to do something for each bit of information that comes in. You know this in practice, that there's far more information we get that's non-actionable than there's actionable information, or that doesn't exactly fit into any structure we're trying to create. So the structure is a much smaller piece than what we see and feel as the totality of the patient, what we're capable of seeing. So just to me, rather than making room for it, is just to embrace saying, ah, I can't possibly know the whole, but I'm holding the tail of the elephant. Okay. But I know there's a whole big elephant on the other end. Okay. Well, let me stroke this tail and see what happens to the whole elephant. So it's not making a little room for the whole elephant, if you get my analogy.
1: Start where you are, knowing that it's connected to a lot more. You can't even know what it's connected to, but you know it's connected to a lot more.
0: Right. And that's the world of qi, which they've tried to contain qi within the body, like the meridians, too, because Chinese medicine and, of course, the Japanese and Koreans, too, have been, I don't like to use this word very much, but have been infected by a a medical materialistic paradigm, which... Goodness knows it has its utility. It's, it's great for what it's great for. And I in no way mean to, you know, malign it in any way. I just, everything has its limits. And ours is a more subjective medicine. And what really matters is how the patient feels at the end of the day. Not if anything measurable is better. Although, you know, that would happen. You know, range of motion can increase. Other things will increase. It's just, that's not our target. And I think we get it fundamentally wrong when we think we can align with a more materialistic paradigm. And we're always feeling constrained and constricted because, you know, we're, we're trying to fit in. But are we actually walking in both worlds?
1: Because on one hand, yes, we're leaving some room for the unknown. And we recognize that there's what's knowable and there's what's not knowable. And... At the same time, we've got a human that walks in and their jaw hurts because they were in a dentist chair two days ago having a root canal and it's sore because somebody was using a jackhammer on their tooth for a couple hours. And that person would like to walk out the door with more comfort in their jaw. So, I mean, we do
0: have that. That is a subjective experience of one individual. And medicine is more aligned with. In general, measurables and patients routinely have problems with their subjective experience being discounted in favor of what's measurable. And we don't need to go on with stories like that because it's the regular fare of our practice. Patients complain about it all the time. And we are in two worlds because patients will see Western doctors. But I think this idea of collaboration is a problem because we are subsumed, subsumed when actually our world, which is a subjective world, that's the patient is primary. The patient's view of his body and his experience of the body is primary. And our view and experience of the patient is, is secondary or supportive. And it will never be the same as Western medicine, which is attempt to control nature or to control chaos or reduce it to what's measurable and, and controllable. And uh, that's why we're here. Otherwise, a profession would have no, no leg to stand on because subjectivity is real and it matters to people. And yet we frame medicine and it's very effective for what it's effective for, for subjective measures of you know certain things besides pain has been hard. Pain has been very hard because it's so subjective. But I really feel that we shouldn't start off on the wrong foot. And routinely, because we're trying to be in two worlds initially, we end up being in the Western medical mindset worldview, and most acupuncturists don't have a clue where we're coming from or where our medicine is coming from. And you, thank God for geological, and other people are keep pointing back to, well, wait a minute, where's the source? What are we really about? And that's why I really value this conversation. Well,
1: I mean, this Chinese medicine is weird stuff. And I remember having a, another guest on the podcast some time ago, Brenda Hood. <laughs> and she's so funny. She was saying, well, you know, well, you know, actually, Chinese medicine isn't completely rational. Which I thought was very funny. Partly because it's true. And partly, and this is for me, because, look. Those of us in the West, and for good reasons, you know, we've grown up with the Western paradigm. That's our mother tongue in terms of looking at phenomena, understanding phenomena, working with phenomena. How we learn this East Asian medicine, it's like, what the fuck? This is crazy stuff. We're looking through a whole different set of lenses and perceptual filters. And it's almost like magic because when you look through these, you can see things that you couldn't otherwise see you can help in ways that you could not otherwise help. But then you try to take it and like crunch it down into something that you can prove in a double-blind study and it unravels like a cheap sweater. So
0: I think it's hard for us. Well, it seems that the statement that we're not completely rational is, is more accurately placed in, I cut my teeth as an interpreter and a translator, and I'm sure the readers who know my name, or the listeners rather, I'm hoping they're readers too, of my books, of books I've translated. Parsing words, I mean, how things are worded, if there's a limit, language has limit. But I would say that our medicine is not completely subjective. And Western medicine isn't completely objective. In other words, we both have our realms. And what we're really looking at here is the subjective realm, which is messy in some ways. It's a realm of art. And then the objective realm, which is a realm of, of math and science. And both of these coexist, just as Yin and Yang do, but the, the point of diminishing returns is reached. When you try to be hyper-objective, you know, they found this with uh, physics, you know, the observer phenomenon. I'm sure you might have heard of that. So, and if you try to be completely subjective, that doesn't work either. Some The system works. The extreme yang turns to yin, extreme yin turns to yang. And so the two are mutually supportive. And yet, the source of our medicine comes from a subjective experience without a lot of objective, you know, scientific type of work. It's called empiricism, you know, it's based on experience and accumulation of experience and documentation and so forth. But it's it's a lot less rigorous in terms of making sure everyone agrees or that the sample sizes are the same or the doses are the same or blah, blah, blah. So when you take our work, which is subjective, uh, both for the patient and the practitioner, it's often said that you can't repeat the same treatment twice, even on the same patient. Yeah. How can you step into the same river twice? So you take that and you try to objectify that. Well, you can't.
1: I mean, how many of us have had the experience? You do a treatment, something marvelous happens. The patient comes back, they're very different. And they usually will say something to the effect of, That was amazing. Do that again. It's like, (laughs) Yeah, you can't. You could do the same points but it won't have the same effect. It's a different time. And here's the main thing, as far as I can tell, because they had an incredible experience and because they're in some ways fundamentally different, you can't treat them the same. They're not the same as they were. Now you got to figure out where they are. Where are they now? What's needed now? Yeah?
0: Yeah. And again, that you're pointing again to the difficulties of our practice In subjectivity, and if we started from there and we keep referring back to there as our home base, rather than trying to validate ourselves to patients or other people, we would be more effective in guiding the patients toward a better subjective experience of of their bodies and their emotions. And yet we're kept pointing, and this is the thing, we're all steeped in Western thinking which objectifies things and things are always in flux and things could manifest better subjectively for a person or a little worse and when you get a little bit better the chances of feeling even better is harder in a certain way and we don't think about this clearly enough but let me go back to one point you made about us wanting to um help the patient with their symptom. That's what the patient wants. But if that's what we want, we're collapsing into the patient's view, which often is limited, of course, and it's the very very same view that brought that symptom with it. So without a bigger framework, we can't really help them that much. If the patient says, oh my God, this is horrible, I need to get rid of it, and you, you repeat that same line, and that's all you do, you have two people who are resisting a certain phenomenon, paying attention, a lot of attention to back pain, if that's the symptom we're looking at. And we need to be able to hold a frame that holds both possibilities. This back pain could stay the same, this back pain could get better, this back pain could get worse. But those are all equally possible. And I somehow I have to be a little bit closer to neutral a little less invested in a positive outcome i mean as a possibility not of course we want the patient to thrive but we just can't be in resistance yeah it it doesn't work to collapse into the patient's cuz if there's that's a cheese stagnation if you want to think about it it's a potential stagnation if i think oh shit if i don't get him better that means i'm not i'm no good that's you know and we all do it but we have to latch on to something better, and therefore we have skills like... It's part of the tacit agreement of medicine in the West. And thus, the, the great disappointment, um, you know, and uh, it's a shame because Western medicine is so good, but we put all of our hopes, subjective and objective, it's almost you expecting them to be God. And then, of course, they fail to do so, and there's a lot of anger and uh, even uh, legal problems. Yeah, we expect too much of, of that and too little of ourselves. Like, uh, you know, it, it's almost as if we have this wonderful technology that we're using, but I don't want to learn anything more about computers. I just want it to completely do everything for me. And it's irresponsible. If you're going to use technology or if you're going to use medicine, you need to know that it it can do some things for you and it can't do other things. And that's what shocks me about some patients is they have a displaced trust in medicine and when it fails, then they feel let down. Well, I think they come about it fairly. I think they
1: come about it fairly, Stephen. It's the tacit agreement that you've got a problem we're going to fix your problem in fact we're not even going to ask for too much participation on your part that's kind of the promise of modern medicine and and, and sometimes it can really deliver like crazy often it doesn't and it, and you know where there's that delta of difference that's where people get dissatisfied and troubles arise or they end up in our offices so there's that it's good for our business but i i want to come back to This um, piece, and I'm going to call it practitioner development, I hate that term, cultivation, I hate that term, but it's something about us becoming, uh, let's say, more refined in our work, for lack of a better term, where we can approach it with a little bit of indifference, actually. Not indifference to the work. By all means, we're fully engaged in the work. But, you know, a little indifference to outcome. So that we're not at the beck and call of the outcome. That our ego is not working in service of an outcome. And then I think there's some room for that unknown part of the elephant that you were talking about earlier. The question I've got is, how do we inculcate that kind of refinement in ourselves. You know, I mean, you've spent a lot of time doing this work, and you've also spent a lot of time with amazing practitioners like Dr. Shudo. You translated a number of his books, including a a fairly recent one.
0: What would Dr. Shudo have to say about this? He's always been an inspiration to me. And the way Dr. Shudo frames a very key theme here, which is practitioner cultivation, which I think is a f- fair term because our medicine is about cultivation of health and chi. He says there's, first of all, knowledge. You know, this is book learning. You could buy any number of books or DVDs and you can acquire knowledge about something. And this is very important. And of course, you then need technique, you know. Even if you're dispensing herbs, you need to have technique and you need to have a refinement, particularly in, if you do raw herbs. It's not just a matter of knowing. You need to know how to handle herbs. There's a handling that has to happen. So your hands, cultivating your hands, shofa, as they say in Chinese. Um, and then the third, but not least, Uh, is what he says, heart, heart heart-mind. And this is the person's awareness, basically. So between knowledge, technique, and awareness, Dr. Shido says awareness is most important, which is stunning because everything is important. But there's a triad of cultivation. But as far as internal medicine is concerned, uh, we're not so sure the way they approach things. So cultivation. This is key and unless we're committed to a lifetime of learning and practicing, we have no business really uh, doing, being in this profession. I mean, there's lots of other things we could do. You know, we could be a teacher because you could really get heavy into knowledge. But as a practitioner, it's, it's incumbent on us. It's really important that we have some people who really embody the medicine in a way that's complete including, you know, knowing the, the origins or the roots of our medicine in a way that is not just superficial, because anybody can learn the acupuncture points, and anybody can learn to insert needles quite simply. And there's quite a bit of outcry among the acupuncture profession about dry needling technique where the physical therapists are starting to use uh, trigger point therapy. That's a whole nother conversation, but that's not really – East Asian medicine, it's a, f- a fragment, it's a f- it's part of it. And it's, I'm not saying it's wrong or anything, but I will say that it it's again, it's stuck in a, a more objective paradigm and um, symptom management paradigm rather than a harmonizing paradigm, which again is not wrong, it's just not for me. And I think the public needs to see that we're aiming squarely for their heart mind and balance not just their back pain going away because sometimes we know i mean sometimes it's the wrong work you know it's it's beyond needles and until we're able to at least point to it and talk about it and we don't need to be you know shrinks or anything like that we can just be ourselves and talk about how they're a whole person and how their back fits into the picture of their life and then guide them towards harmonizing or at least.
4: Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at annsecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks Michael, back to you.
1: Okay, I've got a super troublesome question. It's something I struggle with as well, so that's why I'm asking it that you know on a, it's like on a good day, I feel like I make a connection with my patient. it you know it kind of goes okay, you know, but Stephen, there are those times where I'm not really getting any worthwhile progress all right They're not really feeling better. I don't feel like I'm being helpful, you know. I could do some psychobabble, like holistic this, that, and the other thing as kind of an excuse. And I know I can do it because I've done it. (laughs) I hate to admit it, but I've done it. It's kind of like, well, I'm going to talk me and them into, right? So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the reason I bring it up is because this is, you know, this is a little bit the dangerous side of subjectivity. This is the dangerous side of air quotes holism that we, you know, we kind of believe our own bullshit. Now, I just want to stick a pin in that for a second, because the other side of it is, sometimes you'll really be connected to somebody. You'll say something in clinic. It seems completely innocuous to you. They hear it. Their eyes get big as saucers, and their world is different. And things actually start to get better after that point. You didn't even put a needle in. Something just Happen. So that can also happen as well. So we got those two sides. Something amazing happens just because of words, and then something gets even more stagnated because of our words.
0: Right. It's the ego. In other words, if I'm in there thinking I can say something wise or smart and enlighten them, uh, that's exactly the energy. And the kind of thing that creates a blockage could be, like you said, if you offhandedly said something or it's just part of your routine, uh, what you tell patients about how things work and how things are, and it just happens to land, you know, it's more those, uh, unintentional ones that seem to work. So again, not trying to use words as a psychotherapist might, but not trying to, uh, harmonize them with words, but just um, doing my practice and having the the guts to just stomach my sense of inadequacy. I mean, this, you know, I've been treating this patient uh, five, six, seven times and they're not happy with the results and neither am I. And I feel frustrated. And um, can I still be there with them and continue with my routine? Because, you know, I tell patients this right away is that It's like I'm a stepping stone to perhaps another practitioner. Maybe it's my technique, maybe it's my knowledge, but I'm insufficient for them. And I don't see that as a negative, like, oh, you know, another failure, another failure, another failure, bingo. It's sort of like relationships. I mean, I don't know, some people have had serial marriages or relationships, but I think each relationship, you learn something, and then the next relationship LHC, it's been true for me, I'm better for that next person. And I sort of see that in, you know, aside from malpractice or, you know, people who are um, incompetent, because there are situations where a person is definitely not for you, and that's fine. But in general, if you do your best, and they do their best to hang in there, and then, then you reach a point where, okay, it looks like, you know, looking for something different. I don't see that as a failure. I see that as a kind of part of the search. And um, it helps me because I've, I've, I take these cases of people who've abruptly ended their treatment and I've thought, oh, that's been a waste for me, a waste for them. I didn't figure out if they got better. you know. But now I've, I've turned it around to say, no, 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 no. I learned something. I learned to hold that uncertainty and uh, not getting better. And it's really interesting because Dr. Shudo has been the greatest, I don't know, inspiration in this end. And it took me a long time to realize this, but the the really great practitioners, the ones who are famous and see a lot of patients, they don't get such good results as I thought at first. What they have is that ability to hang in there and not blame the patient, but their ability to continue trying. I mean, he sees patients sometimes for a year before they even start getting better. But somehow the patient believes that he can manage to do that. How long can you hang in there with the uncertainty? And I am, I'm afraid uh, until more recently would throw in the towel before the patient. And that's not good. We both have to say, you know what, we've both given it a fair shot. I wish you well, but I've, I've reached my limit. And, uh, you know, to have that conversation, but it's still not a loss because it's if it's a subjective world, there's always learning happening, and you, if you learn something doesn't work, uh, you can try something else. But I I believe more often than not, patients, and I'm afraid I've been having too much the patients view, give up too soon. I mean, some patients give up in three treatments, and and in China. Certainly in China, you know, you don't – Ten treatment is just a beginning, but we're much too impatient over here. And, and then we sort of buy into that impatience, and that's the problem.
1: Well, I know that I've got that kind of impatience. I for sure have that kind of impatience. Because for me, if I'm not seeing some kind of shift in some way, it doesn't mean they're better – but, like, it's like if the wind's not blowing in a slightly different direction after the third or fourth treatment, I'm thinking I might not be able to be helpful. And maybe I'm just giving it not enough time. But I got, Stephen, I got to tell you this thing of like, well, maybe 10 treatments before you start to notice something. I'm thinking, no, that just means I'm a shitty practitioner. I and mean, that's just me. I feel like something should be subjectively tangible in the first like four to five treatments.
0: Yeah. There's, it's a sense of engagement. You're not saying, okay, yeah. 10 treatments That's for right. everybody, right. whether I feel anything or you feel anything, we're going to give it 10. It's, it's not an either or situation. And I like that because you're adding some uh, flexibility to the situation where, and I do this too with patients. I say in, You know, you can schedule more and we'll do that, but you're not bound to them. Because in a subjective world, it's like your second date and your third date. You've got to decide that it's working for both of you. And to say that we're going to have 10 dates or 10 treatments every time, even though I think we're, you know, in the West, we're a little squeamish about subjectivity, and even using such an analogy seems like, oh, it's we're talking about medicine here. It must be more cut and dried, and it must be more, you know, non-emotional. But it's interesting that in Japan, the term "chi" is equated more closely to emotions than anything else. If you told the Japanese, "My chi feels bad," they're equated directly to your having so emotionality, And subjectivity are just almost synonymous. But we're a little squeamish about that in a professional clinical setting. And I'm not talking about love or any kind of strange attachment. That's beside the point. But I'm talking about it is very much like attracts like. Dr. Shido says that. He says, you know, people who I get along with stick around and people who I don't get along with tend to leave. And it's interesting because he doesn't ask people to come back. He always lets his dates, his patients want to reschedule. I think that's true. But some people for business reasons or other reasons have, have set up a model, a structure that frames it in a way that's sometimes inflexible and, and doesn't fit the situation. And I, so I, I really like how you want to feel your way into it. And if you feel good about going for 10, you would. But somewhere you feel like, Mm-mm, I think this patient, you know, for identifiable or vague reasons, it just doesn't feel like a fit. I think it's right to uh, help them move on to their next experience. But I really am glad you're doing this conversation because we really don't talk enough about this. Well, here's another piece.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, you're, you've been more in schools than I have, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know what goes into the training of new practitioners. But I can tell you from clinical experience and what my clinic has taught me sometimes I'll get to that point where it's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to help you, you know, and I'll have that conversation. I'll be very straightforward with it. It's like, look, I'm not trying to get rid of you. And I'm not trying to tell you to go away, but I, I'm just concerned I might not be help, that helpful for you. And I've had patients say, yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. And I've had other patients say, you know, I want to go a little further down the road. I know we haven't reached an endpoint, like, I think there's more to do here, but you seem to have some kind of handle on looking at things in a way that I think might be helpful. So like, could I schedule a few more? You know, it's like, yeah, sure. And then they're like, let's check in and three more treatments and see where you're at. I find people, at least the people that that tend to see me, they like that. They like that. I know that I'm looking out for them, that I'm, trying to take care of them and that I care for them and I want them to go away as soon as they can, as well as they can.
0: Exactly. So your clinical practice is squarely in the subjective realm of therapy or treatments as a learning process. And we're learning, our body mind is learning with that practitioner. And at a certain point you reach uh where that's not what you want to learn or you've learned as much as you want to learn, but it's something the patient selects. And uh, if, you know, I rarely turn a patient away based on that. But again, I don't think our profession frames our medicine that way enough to where patients know what they're coming into. Uh, and, And if they knew more that how much it required of them. Well, no, but, but I mean, Stephen,
1: how could they? How could they know? Well, I don't know. Like Pacific Northwest, a lot of people have had experience with acupuncture, so there's that. But, you know, I live here in Missouri. I I saw somebody just this morning, brand new patient, and they come in and go, well, you know, I don't know much about acupuncture. And I'm like, well, why should you? Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's incumbent on us to inform them. Okay.
1: So do we inform them with a story? Do we inform them with, well... This is how it goes. Or do we inform them with the way that we are and the way that we treat and the experience that they get is what informs them? I mean.
0: Well, I would start with saying that it's about you. You
1: know, I I know practitioners that hand out brochures about what to expect.
0: Right, right. And we could talk about East Asian medicine or we could talk about uh, what acupuncture is or what we're going to do. All those things. But I think more important, we should put the spotlight on them. And talk about, it's about your energy. And our work is to balance and, you know, uh, increase your energy, which then heals your body. You know, this harmonizing invariably builds or cultivates energy. And that's what's doing the healing. And I'm the assistant. We're a team here. But if there's a leader in the team, actually, you're the leader. And I, I'm the supporter. Like, it's almost like a you're a coach. And uh, the coach can't actually run as fast or throw as far as, you know, the, the player himself. But again, you know a lot about the game, but that analogy holds because it's subjective and how far the patient's goals matter a lot. So really talking about, it's about you and your goals, and I want to support them and what you need to do to get to where you go and how, how I can help you. And these are the skills I do in my case, I do acupuncture, moxibustion, and shiatsu sotai. Those three, um, you know, two bodywork modalities and one is acupuncture and But I think telling them what I do is secondary to telling them what they need to do to make the best use of my medicine. But again, as you well know, uh, patients are different. Yeah, I, I'm not comfortable with the spotlight on me and some people will be able to absorb that right away and some people might need to have it spoon-fed. But it's the same thing. The main thing is not to give them too much information or, you know, too much to do right away. But since my practice doesn't have herbs, the take-home stuff is usually an exercise or mox at home or something like this. So it involves, uh, you know, patient participation. And without that, I notice patients who are unwilling to do anything with and for themselves are—they just don't return and they don't do as well. It's just basic tendency that those who are able to help themselves or take more time outside—it's true. I also teach Tai Chi and Qigong, uh, not to my patients. Some patients do come to Qigong classes, but I do teach classes, and those. Students who practice Qigong or tai chi outside the class are the ones who stick around. And those who just come once a week and practice are, they don't get very far. But, you know, again, maybe Qigong is not for them. Maybe they want yoga. Maybe they have a better teacher somewhere else. And that's all learning. There's
1: also that piece, you know, it's like our nutrition. It's like anything. If we put some attention on something and we put some effort into it, then it deepens. Like put your attention there, it
0: deepens. Thank you for saying that. That's
1: exactly what patients need to add. Which sounds easy, but that, you know, it's easy to get distracted.
0: Yeah. It's attention. In the end, it's intention and attention of the patient that we need because it's it's in the subjective realm. In medicine, for most things, except for physical therapy, perhaps, the patient. It doesn't need to be there. Just lay there and get the MRI or whatever. You know, just get the blood draw. The patient doesn't have to have intention, attention. But without their intention, attention, you know, in alignment with ours, our work is much, much weaker. And we could, you know, both of us could come up with dozens of examples of patients who've, who had that or didn't have that. Well, I find it's medicine as a participatory sport. Definitely it's a team thing. Jason Robertson, who's a good friend of mine, and we have conversations of this caliber all the time, we see E as E, you know, as medicine, as intention. He's talked about that many times. And I'm I'm really in alignment with that concept. A team sport, it's a participatory sport, but what is participating is E, you know, and it, it really is key that... The patient is educated to realize that, oh my God, me being present, and nowadays we have words like mindfulness, but that really matters. You know, I I can check out and go to sleep. That's fine. But when I'm not asleep, there's places I can put my attention uh, that would help the chi or not. And in acupuncture, Chinese style in particular, patients just have to lay there. And, uh, you know, usually is a long process of the needles being there, but it doesn't have to take that long. And that's what's interesting about Dr. Shudo's work is through long years of practice. And if you read his recent book, you would find the evolution of his practice because it's 50 years. He has this earlier case studies. He used to retain many needles. He didn't used to uh, have this contact or non-retained needling, but he, he gradually you know, transitioned to his own experience, to a style that's much less invasive. But again, the patient's intention is key in that process.
1: How would Dr. Shudo frame the importance of the patient's frame of mind in the process? What would he have to say about that? And secondly, just as a follow-up, this might be too much, but I'm going to ask anyway, what can we do as practitioners to help engage that?
0: And uh, I think for the patient's part, the most important thing is to trust and that would mean to relax and also give feedback. In other words, if a needle is placed or something is to give the practitioner feedback on how that needling is, in other words, not every time. Not every point, but it seems to me that some patients are very, very passive where whatever you do is okay. And other patients are trying to comment on everything. But the main thing is they're not commenting on something that's a story about their condition, but oh, that needle feels there or that in the moment, what's happening to my body. So he wants the patient to be trust what he's doing and then give him feedback about comfort, discomfort, or neutral. Just being ready to give him information about tender points. And um, that's the thing, not to be too passive and not to be too talkative. Being too talkative or going on and on with your story about all your symptoms is just a sign that you don't think they have enough information or you just need to be heard and you're not listening. Because the patient's role is to listen, and that listening can be physical, and then then to give feedback what the body sensation might be. But and this is what's different about the Japanese style and the Shido style in particular is that it's very interactive. Yeah, there's not a long period of of needles and the patient hanging out together. The longest he would retain a needle would be 10 minutes, and uh, that's generally how long I do.
1: So so Dr. Shudo is more like put a needle in, get some kind of uh, interaction between the needle and the person, take it out, move on to something else, move on to something else,
0: move on to something else. Is that is that how he works? Yes. Yes, it's exactly right. He might not stay on a point for more than half a minute. Sometimes he might even touch a point less than a second. And that's because his standard for having connected to a point and having reached his effect is based on what he calls the arrival of qi. Acupuncturists have heard about the qi, uh, which is a sensation that the patient feels. And this is where the patient would feed back to Dr. Shudo or to me saying, oh, I feel that. And of course, that's very common in our profession. But he also values the arrival of qi, which is a sense of change at the point. And that could be felt within a few seconds. Um, and you feel like, okay, the point is on, or the point has been engaged enough. And typically, arrival of qi, uh, this is just a, a gross generalization, but the arrival of qi is when you're trying to tonify or activate a point, point. and the du qi it comes in the case of when you're trying to drain or disperse a point. But the arrival of qi is something that the practitioner feels even without the patient. Some patients can feel it. You know, you know the sensitive patients who who feel a lot of, you know, pre dutchy You know, the, the, the subtle chi versus uh, dutchie would be very clear to the patient.
1: So, Stephen, for you as a practitioner doing the work, when you experience the arrival of chi, what's that like for you?
0: I feel it in my whole body, I don't feel it in the hands as much, but sometimes it starts in the hands where I'm connecting, see, the Japanese and shido style as well tend to hold the body of the needle as well as the handle of the needle. But that's not necessary either, but it just so happens we use city needles with a plastic handle, so it helps to hold the metal part of the needle. So if you had a metal handle, one hand would be fine. but you feel a, a very soft i'll call it a tingly sensation but it's not a strong sensation like numbness that washes over my arms and shoulders and face and body down to my feet it's it's like a, a whole body sensation and it feels relaxing it feels good and this is something That always mystified me. I've always wondered why Dr. Shudo could see more than 50 people a day and never be tired. And then I realized that he was borrowing or sharing chi with his patients. He always said he wasn't using his own chi, but still, I just wondered, you know, why he was so animated after, you know, seven or eight hours of work, seeing so many people just one, I mean, three people at a time, you know, one after after the other, but he seems to be energized by it. And he's 90 now, right, right now, and he's still seeing 20 patients a day, four days a week. Well, he's got a condition of in his back that makes it hard for him to stand. So he has to sit on a stool anymore. He's quite old at 90. And so even that, he's actually moving qi and balancing qi in himself each time he works with a patient. In other words, it's intersubjective and it, it's... Acupuncture at that level is, it's like martial arts, where it's almost miraculous when people reach a level of mastery that they can do what they do at their age. And he seems to be doing it. Even with a lot of physical pain, he appears. And I I wonder why he does it, because he could retire. He's got more money than he needs. And yet he keeps doing it because what? It helps his health. There'd be no other reason he'd be practicing still if it wasn't for himself. Of course, he wants to help his patients. (laughs) But his patients don't want him
1: to quit either. Yes. Well, you know, I think there's something, you know, we, we often think about that. Oh, I got enough money. I can just quit and do whatever I want. You know, but one of the really, I think, great benefits of doing the work that we do is it gives the day a deep infusion of meaning. And there's something about being connected to a practice or a work or a something that brings meaning into our life. It's kind of a fountain of youth, I think, right? I mean, meaningless lives. I mean, people take their own life when they don't have meaning in it.
0: Yeah, I I agree completely. And meaning is kind of a chi. It is currency. It goes between people. And it's exactly right. Dr. Shido's work, Um, has shown me that acupuncture is a way, a way, as they say in Japan, a a do, and it heightens to the level of, you know, not just cultivation, but mastery. And um, there's no end. And um, it's a win-win situation. In other words, both people are learning, both people are cultivating and uh, harmonizing their chi each time they do it. And of course, this is really completely different from the Western medical idea of there's a doctor who's okay, and there's a patient who's sick, and a doctor with his knowledge and technique is making the patient better. Whereas with martial arts or qigong or acupuncture and body work as well, actually, each person is gaining each time at different levels, but each person is gaining and um I think this is the dimension of our medicine that is often laid aside because there are a lot of techniques, and there are a lot of a lot of knowledge to be gained. But if we drop that part, I think we lose some of the meaning because it just becomes another business and another capitalistic venture where I'm going to earn my you know money, which is fine. Of course we will. But there's meaning there. There's some deep meaning that connects us back to the source of our medicine as human and as life. Well, you were
1: talking about E. Yeah, you were talking about E. And, you know, one of the translations of E, like like Isa, it's meaning. Like E is meaning. E is significance. E is that which, it's that which connects with meaning. You can make a case for that, I think. And at the same time, Stephen... It brings me back to something you said earlier. I wrote it down because it, it, you know, it struck me. You said, more than I could possibly understand. right? So we've got everything that we bring to it and all the years of experience or not. And there's always more than we can possibly understand. You know, That uncertainty that the rest of that elephant is always there in some capacity.
0: Yeah, but it's great because it's sort of supportively there. It's like I'm the center of the universe and the rest of the universe is in support of me if I'm in harmony. And if I'm not in harmony, it's it's a lot of trouble. But chaos or uncertainty or complexity is not a problem if I'm harmonized. And therefore, if I'm holding the elephant the tail of the elephant just right, there's this ginormous thing I can't see because remember, I'm blind in that analogy that can pull me along or do. It's an amazing universe if I'm not at odds with it. And that's our work, is to find that sweet spot. And sometimes, I'm sorry, it doesn't quite happen with a certain patient, but it doesn't mean we won't keep trying because we've had that amazing connection where we didn't quite know what was going on, but we did something and something shifted for both of us, the patient and ourselves. And that's what's wonderful about the Shudo style is at each point, you can have that little subtle feeling of reassurance from the combination of their chi and your chi, it's like a handshake. It says, hey, how are you? Great. And there's this wonderful warm surge that goes both directions. I don't know what it is. Not knowing what it is even makes it more uh, alluring in some ways. But again, Westerners are a little bit squeamish about subjectivity.
1: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, my friend, it sounds well and we're squeamish about not having data and some authority saying this is real and this is okay. You know, it's it's kind of a, uh, it's something, I don't know the word for being able to stand in a place with some unknowing, some capacity for kind of tracking the void as Chip Chase used to say, and be engaged with our patients, with some things that are known or perceivable and many that are not. You know, and as you said, it's an amazing universe when I'm not at odds with it.
0: So that's where practice and cultivation comes in, is that if we're sloppy and just, you know, we can just babble on about these things. But when the rubber meets the road, when we meet our patients who's in pain or suffering, we're pushed to a point where we have to find some way to harmonize the ground and find some harmony within ourselves to face the disharmony. So we need to practice both with patients and without patients. And that practice has a certain, you know, framework. It has to have a certain structure. And we can't just be sloppy with structure. And, you know, you don't practice meridian therapy as as far as I know. You have a style that you've accumulated and and distilled into your own. And this is uniquely Michael. Dr. Shudo said the same thing to me. He said, Stephen, you you can try learning the Shudo style, but in the end, it's going to have to be a brown style. It's gonna to have to be your subjective tool set of goods. Any martial artist has their own techniques. And unless you practice those techniques in real life situations and, and with yourself, both, Dr. Shudo is really big on self-practice without patients, needling yourself, for instance, so that you, your hands know what to do. You're, you're tuned and ready to heal, like a martial artist to be tuned and ready to fight. And if you don't do that, this becomes really sloppy, nonsensical stuff that uh, the other side poo-poo because it is. It's just a lot of uh, new age mishmash that doesn't result in anything. But if we are paying attention, E again, and if we practice, we cultivate, we grow a subjective sense of where we need to be in terms of now I'm balanced, grounded, and this is where they're not balanced and this is where and we have uh, and that's where the medicine comes in but for hands-on practice i'm not sure for herbs uh, but it's true for body work and acupuncture and moksha too how how you want to be able to deliver the technique almost mindlessly almost without having to pay any attention to the technique and using your e toward the patient and with the patient and again I think this is where our, our profession is deficient. We really work on CEUs and knowledge, but technique, um, not, not as much. And I'm hoping most of us spend a lot of time honing our intention with meditation or other kinds of training. It could be just gardening or taking care of animals. Uh, you know, the subjective realm that doesn't respond to force. You can't force a horse or a cat. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't force a patient. Well, for sure. You know, and that's the thing. You can entice them,
1: though. <laughs> yeah, you could. But, you know, and I think in some ways our work does entice people. You know, hands-on work, gentle work, touch that is respectful and communicative. There's a kind of enticement. There's a invitation to let your physiology soak something in that it would otherwise maybe be guarded against. You know, I I think a lot of troubles, I think about my own life. A lot of troubles aren't the things I got, it's the things I'm guarding against, you know, and it sets up tensions and it sets up stressors and, you know, often enough will cut you off from
0: the very nourishment that you need. Yeah. You mentioned a very important word about stressors because Dr. Shido stated even 25 years ago, before the millennium, that the 21st century was the age of the mind, and that our clinic, we would be treating more mental, read physical, more emotional over physical problems. Although physical problems are there, emotional problems will predominate in the 21st century because of the stressors and the amount of data and, uh, you know, other, everything's moving so fast these days that everyone's under more stress and that's uh, the key thing or gentling or listening seems to be more conducive to healing that than force have you seen that play out in your clinical work definitely and i'm i'm using a lot more um non-needling techniques or you know we're actually I'll use what's called tasing or silver they're not needles but they're tools and i do things more on the head. I mean, in the first half of my profession, I've been in practice less than 40 years, about 35. But the first 15, 20 years, I didn't do scalp and ear that much. Because one thing Dr. Shido says is if a person has a lot of emotional issues or stress, retaining needles or even inserting needles is counterproductive because their system needs to settle and that you shouldn't insert... Needles very much, but I still retain needles in the scalp, and the ears. Uh, Doctor Shido doesn't do very many scalp needles, but I really feel that scalp and ear acupuncture are key in you know stress work. So yes, I'm doing a lot more. Mm-hmm.
1: You've come around to that in your work. It's psychosomatic work. Yeah, it's uh, you know we're lucky lucky to practice long enough to watch yourself go through different stages of perception and development and practice. And um, I was going to say knowledge. Knowledge is a piece. Yes, important. From talking to you today, my friend, I'm reminded to have a little more appreciation for what we don't know and to be a little friendly with it. But I want to come back and finish with some knowing here um, because... You do have this book of Dr. Shudo's, like, 50 years of practice. And uh, would you take just a minute or two to, to share with the listeners what they would find in that thing, what they'd find in that book?
0: Well, this book, 50 Years of Practice, a clinical the case histories of Shudo Deme, is uh, the third in a series of books I've translated. And it's sort of the opus magnum, in a sense. In fact, if you're going to buy one book or look at one, this is more, better than the first two because it shows a evolution of a practitioner. And you said very well that it's good to stay in practice a while because you start to learn some things that you can only learn by being in practice. And um, he describes his early years and his, you know, what kind of things he was treating. And you'll see that he was retaining needles a lot more. And then you see the progression to more and more psychosomatic type treatments. And he talks a lot about treating the mind. Because interestingly enough, he, he's also a scholar and he's read the classics a lot. And he sees the zongfu as being the seat of the mind, not just the emotions. And he really feels that stress is treated by balancing the zongfu. Not, uh, I do scalp needling, but he does that. So, And he'll talk about his needle techniques. His um, signature technique is super rotation technique, where he twists a needle on the skin surface without inserting. So he'll go through every type of condition, you know, from musculoskeletal to just aging and uh, talk about where he's been successful and where he's not been successful. That's why I love him, his honesty. He doesn't have only the successful case histories and he'll critique himself and this is very helpful, particularly if you're beginning, and, and you know, you're wondering if you can have any success with a certain condition if you've never treated it before. It'd be very useful. And um, so I highly recommend it. And it, the good news is there's a lot of video of his work on YouTube. And uh, if you just Google search Shido Deme. You'll see me also translating for him, but you'll see him in his own clinic and you get to see what this uh, SRT technique, super rotation technique looks like and how can it actually work? You know, if you're used to just retaining or inserting needles. I will.
1: So how does it work? What is it about super rotation technique
0: on the very, very, very surface there? It's the skin. The skin is the most sensitive and intelligent part of where the needle may encounter. Remember, where do you pay the most attention? Usually when you're inserting the needle is, is to is to what we call break the skin because the skin is that sensitive. So there's a lot of qi there. And traditionally in the summer and the spring, you were supposed to be at the Wei chi level, which is the skin or a little bit below the skin. You know, it depends on how much qi and where the qi is. But if it's winter and the qi is deep, but somehow in Chinese uh, styles in recent history with the the number of hospitals and number of patients being treated, they just simplified it to one size fits all. And it does work. You know, we can't argue with that. Retained needles uh, is a good way to go for some patients, but the skin is very sensitive and you've seen those sensitive patients who balk at you know deep needles. So it's worth learning for a whole set of patients. And I suspect
1: even the less sensitive ones might find some benefit there as well. You know, And it seems to me also, and, and this just comes from having, when we're laying on a table and someone's about to stick a needle in us, we're a little sensitive, a little hyper-aware.
0: Or when you're under stress, you're more sensitive. In other words, whenever our whole system, you know, when you're in f- closer to fight and flight, whenever your nervous system becomes more sensitive or alert, that's a time when the skin is a very potent place to interface the chi.
1: You know, I and mean, we could go on forever. I don't know about forever, but for a long time about, you know, needle technique and And just thinking about how we interact with the body and what levels it is. And, uh, you know, we probably should land this plane for now, but we'll probably have to come back and talk about this other topic at another time. Just want to let you know, I will put some of those links to Dr. Shuto's YouTube videos up on the show notes page. So people have quick access to that. And then folks can go to Eastland Press to get your book, right?
0: Yes, eastlandpress.com.
1: Excellent. Well, Stephen Brown, it's always a delight to talk with you. Will you come back and hang out with me again at some point? We'll have another conversation about uh, needle technique.
0: I'd love to. It'd be my pleasure.
1: All right, my friend. Until next time then. Medicine sells itself on evidence and certainty. It cozies up to science so as to put up a buffer against uncertainty. And in our East Asian medicine world, we lean on our long history to keep the winds of the unknown at bay. I appreciate Stephen's friendly disposition toward uncertainty, that it's not something to be gotten rid of, but instead to be on friendly terms with. For one, because, well, that's the nature of the world in which we live. And secondly, because within uncertainty, There can be resources and healing that only show up as you engage the explorative process of treatment. Furthermore, beyond getting friendly with uncertainty, finding a way to be on better terms with our process of learning and development, realizing that mastery takes considered experience over the course of decades, that we need to leave some room for recognizing where we got it wrong because it will help us to be more accurate with our work in the future. And having teachers like Dr. Shudo, to help remind us that it's not what we know, but how we engage with the process of finding out. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.